Hey everyone, this is Brian Zimmerman, editor of Jazz's Magazine, here to introduce another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. Before I do that, though, I want to take a quick second to thank one of this episode's sponsors, the DC Jazz Festival, which is set to take place June 7th through 16th in Washington, DC. This year marks the festival's 15th anniversary, and they'll be celebrating with more than 100 artists performing on 40 stages in venues across the city. Headliners include John Batiste, Snarky Puppy, Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, and many others. We've got a playlist up on our site right now that features a bunch of the artists that will be performing at this fest. Check it out and then go buy tickets for yourself, your family, and all your friends at dcjazzfest.org. All right. Those of you who subscribe to the magazine know that our most recent print edition celebrated our 35th anniversary by taking a look back at the iconic photos that appeared in our pages. Well, in today's episode, Jazz's publisher Michael Fagan talks with two of the photographers behind those iconic shots. They discuss everything you want to know about these high-profile photo shoots and the amazing stories behind them. We're talking one-on-one shoots with legends like Miles Davis, George Benson, Diana Krall, Esperanza Spaulding, and so many more. If you feel like it, open up that print edition or visit the story on our website, and you can follow along as the photographers describe each shot. Anyhow, I'm going to stop talking so that we can get into this fascinating interview. We'll start things off with Michael's interview with photographer Jeff Sedlick. Hi, this is Jeff Sedlick, and you're listening to Jazz Is, Not What You Think. On this episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think, I have longtime friend and brilliant photographer, Jeff Sedlick. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Michael. Uh, how are you? Nice to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. And I want to let everyone know that, um, you know, of all the cover shoots we've done and, and Jeff has done, the one that is probably the most memorable, not just for Jazz Is, but for people that know Miles Davis's work. It's Jeff's shot on the cover of Jazz Is uh, this month, and uh, a similar shot ran in 1989. So, Jeff, again, thanks for being here. Um, I'd like to jump right into that pretty famous shoot, because that, that shot with his finger to his mouth has become sort of an icon type photo of miles that you can, as I mentioned before, describe to people and they know what shot you're talking about. Tell me what it was like that day. I remember as kind of a preamble to that. I remember talking with his manager at the time, who I think I then introduced to you a guy named Peter Shukai, wonderful guy. He's no longer with us, but just a wonderful man and, and very well um, regarded in the music industry. And uh, he didn't think that miles was going to, allow us to do a photo shoot because he had just done one. I can't remember whether it was with, you know, her Brits or Annie Leibovitz. And he had just done a, a major shoot and he said, you know, I don't think he's going to want to do another photo session. Um, just can you use what you, what you have. And, um, I said, you know, would you mind if I asked the photographer, Jeff Sedlick to, to send you his book. And so Jeff sends, uh, gets the address, sends his book with photos to Miles and to Miles' manager. And I get a call a couple days later. And he basically says, Miles likes it. He'll do it. 
And so tell tell everyone what went on from there. How 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 you how you that day at Miles' house? How'd that go? Well, it was a good day, and you know Miles lived on the beach in Malibu, uh, beautiful home, beautiful vista there. Um, he did not want to come out to the studio, and so um, I showed up with a truck, about a 20-foot truck, and uh, four or five assistants, uh, makeup and hair people, and uh, a whole truck full of gear generators and stands and lighting and everything. And he gave us his back patio to set up on. But when I rang the bell that day, um, Miles' uh, significant other, uh, I believe, answered the door. And there was some confusion about whether the shoot was going to happen that day or not, even though it was fully scheduled. And meanwhile, I had all of my gear rented, my crew hired. We were ready and raring to go. And daylight was passing. And so uh, after some discussion and uh, some a, a little bit of uh, a discussion also in person with Miles, he said, oh, come on in and let's, let's do this. Um, and he remembered the images that... I had forwarded to him to his house by messenger, which was my portfolio and some special images that showed him that I had a understanding of photography. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it, it went pretty well from there. I mean, I walked in, I think he and some friends and his nephew, uh, Vince, with whom I am very good friends today, um, were watching the Ali versus Frazier fight. <laughs> <laughs> and I was standing there talking to Miles about my, the photography, and he was watching the Ali versus Frazier fight, and I didn't realize that I was standing between him and the screen. <laughs> so, so if I made one mistake that day, that was my mistake. The rest of the day went really well. So we, uh, you know, I had a, I sat down with Miles. I believe that I was there with your writer that day, and uh, there was a, before the writer interviewed him, I uh, sat down with him and talked about my ideas for the shoot. And my, my working method is to sketch my ideas. So I had basically a small portfolio of about 15, 20 sketches of concepts that I had come up with after researching um, other photographs of Miles. Of course, I knew Miles' history and I knew his music intimately, but I, I liked to, to immerse myself um, in the music, in the person's history, in interviews that they have had in the past, in other writings and other observations. And so, and all that gets kind of distilled down into sketches. And I throw away, you know, 100 sketches and bring it down to 20. And then I take those 20 sketches and show it to my subject. And in that case, I showed Miles my sketches and he reacted really favorably to a number of those um, sketches, um, which had him, for example, playing his mute without the horn and which also had him uh, holding his finger up to his lips and um, with his paintings behind him and some other sketches that I had done. And he was uh, just pretty pleased. And I was glad that we got over that hump because I had not met him previously. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't make the mistake of trying to talk about his music with him. <laughs> we talked about we, we talked about photography and the similarities between photography and music and improvisation and negative space and positive space. And by the end of that conversation, he was good to go. And so at that point, uh, me and my crew went into his backyard and set up uh, a pretty significant um, uh, amount of gear to get this done because my ideas were all uh, low key. In other words dark background, moody lighting. And here we were 
at 12 noon on the beach in Malibu. <laughs> so, so none of that was conducive to my, you know, the ideas that I wanted to capture on film. So basically we built a 20 by 20 foot studio in his backyard. And that studio um, as a roof had a piece of sailcloth. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sides of that studio on three sides, uh, 20 by 20 feet each, were draped black fabric that basically cut out all the light at the beach. And then I stood on the open end of that um, and um, to, to, to make the photographs. On the top, we blocked out most of that 20 by 20 foot silk, except for a tiny window, maybe three by three feet. And that's where the light came from. And then we put additional walls of black fabric on both sides of miles, about two feet away from his face. <laughs> and, and then I got to work. And uh, Miles and I went up to his closet and went through and picked out some of his wardrobe. By the way, the guy has had the most impressive closet <laughs> full of clothes that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. And it was all the stuff that you see in all the photographs of him through the ages. He had, he had it all. It was spectacular. And so we picked out uh, some, uh, a, a dark jacket, beautiful uh, thing for, the, for most of the shots. And some and some alternatives as well, and uh, went down and got to work. And um, I guided him through the sketches before we uh, took each shot. I showed him my sketch. We we did that, and then each of us improvised on that as we went along, with um, other hand positions, other expressions, etc. You know, my sketches are a starting point uh, for that collaboration with my subject. Uh, so w we did that. We took out his mute and did some wonderful shots with the mute wh where he was. Um, uh, actually, it wasn't the mute. It's a mouthpiece. I'm sorry. I was mis mm -hmm. mis Yeah, I remember. I, I spoke. So we, we had the mouthpiece and he muted it with his hands and uh, fantastic images there. Mm -hmm. And then um, I noticed that there was a, a crumpled uh, overalls sitting on his patio outside on the on the ground next to some of his paintings which he was actively working on as he was uh, painting quite a bit um, in his final years. And he's very well known for those paintings to this day. Uh, and so I said, Miles, can you put those overalls on? And he looked at me like, you want me to put overalls on? Do you know who I am? He just looked at me and it went right through me. You know, I felt cold, <laughs> cold shivers right down my spine, right? And I, I said, Miles, one of my sketches, as you know, was with your painting as the entire backdrop. And I think that you in your painter's overalls with paint all over them with your paintbrushes would be a great shot. So he said, all right, <laughs> thank God. And he, he, puts the, he goes inside, puts the overalls on and comes back out and sits down in the chair. And my assistant's standing behind him holding the painting because there wasn't really time to hang it from a stand and I didn't want to damage the painting. So he's gingerly holding this giant canvas behind Miles. And, and I noticed Miles' strap of his overalls, you know, that comes over your shoulder and down to the overalls, was twisted. And I said, Miles, uh, can you untwist that strap? And he, looked, he gave me that look again, you know, <laughs> like, do you know who I am? And why are you talking about the strap of my overalls, you know? <laughs> and, I, and, 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 I, and I said, Miles, you know, it's not the fact that it's twisted, it's the way that it's twisted. <laughs> and he, he smiled at me and he untwisted the strap. <laughs> it was it was fantastic, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. those shots are some of my favorites as, as well. Yeah, mine too. Uh, 
So then we wrapped that up and I said, Miles, let's go for a walk. So he and I alone uh, went for a walk on the beach and talked about photography and talked about music. And as we were walking, I was making photographs and we sat down in the shade under a, one of the trees at the edge of his property and talked for maybe 15 minutes. I mean, to me, it was like, uh, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime, but I didn't really let that on uh, because mm -hmm. I was I was raised on his music. My parents played his music. It interested me in the whole genre when I was from, from the time I was very small. And so we talked about all kinds of things. And as we were talking, I made photographs. Uh, he laughed. I captured some really great shots of Miles smiling and laughing and holding his horn. And then uh, finally, to end out the day, this was after about maybe six hours or so, um, he stood on the bluff and I photographed him with his red horn playing. And he played for about 15 minutes for me and my crew. <laughs> and that was the ultimate experience, you know, you know, so getting married, having children, that those that stuff comes at the very top. But in terms of my photography experience, nice. that moment with Miles playing for me and my three or four people that were standing there uh, was fantastic. And uh, and then he stopped and he looked and he said, you know, there's already enough notes floating around out there. <laughs> 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 and, and and that was the end of the shoot. And uh, the next time that I saw Miles was uh, he gave me a call and left a message on my answering machine, which I kept, of course, because that, in those days it was on tape and asked me to come down to a session, uh, a gig that he was playing at a club. I went down there and uh, brought the brought some of the photos. And uh, I think this was after you had shown him the photos and mm -hmm. he had he had seen them. I brought him some additional photos. You know, what was your experience like showing him the photos? Well, you know, when I remember how excited you were when you called me and told me that this session just turned out better than you could ever imagined. And um, in, in fact, I couldn't even understand you in the beginning because you were almost screaming. You were so excited. <laughs> um, uh, and and so, you know, I said, well, what would be really cool, because I did believe, knowing your work, I knew that this would be sort of the ultimate Miles Davis photo session. And I, I actually, I positioned it that way to his manager. Uh, at, at that time, had never had talked to Miles before. I was just talking to Peter. And um, I called Peter and I said, Peter, would it be okay if I met with Miles? And he said, well, why, why do you want to meet with Miles? And I said, well, I'd like to show him the photography and let him pick the cover shot. He said, well, you know, I don't think he's going to do that. Um, I said, well, you also said he wasn't going to do the photo shoot, and he, he did it, and it came out amazing. Of course, at that point, I hadn't even seen the shot, just your descriptions of the shot over the phone. So you overnighted me a big package of, of 11 by 14s and, and um, contact sheets. Because remember, for our listeners, this was in the pre-digital era. So you weren't emailing, you know, high res JPEGs. There wasn't such a thing back then. Right. So I, I got the, the uh, photo shoot from you in a box and I looked at it and I just, I couldn't believe it. It was truly as good as everyone now knows it is. And um, uh, Peter called me back and said, I don't know what it is with you, Fagan, but he said, I'll meet with you. So we set up a time to meet and we're, I can't remember whether we were, I think it was at a hotel. And um, we get into this suite, and there's a whole bunch of people there. 
And so we figured it was just friends and family. And um, we had magazines with us because we were going to give them to, you know, him. And so you can see some back issues of jazz is and things like that. And uh, before we got to Miles, um, friends and family were kind of pulling it out of our the product out of our hands. By the time we got to Miles, there was nothing to give him. And he just kind of turned to me and said, family. I just, it just, <laughs> it just broke the ice. At that point, I was laying down these gigantic sheets that you gave me. Uh, and um, he was putting him into kind of a yes, no, and maybe piles. And I could tell he kept moving towards this one photo but of course, I love that classic shot with his finger to his mouth. And he just kind of kept pointing at it. And I, I could tell why he liked it, because his, his face looked quite beautiful in that shot. Um, and I wound up using that for the cover in 1989 uh, out of respect to Miles, knowing that the, the shot that I really loved, which we ran on the inside, um, was your classic shot. And for everyone uh, listening, if you haven't seen the new issue of Jazz Is, Jeff Sedlick's classic shot is on the cover. Uh, we've never run it before uh, as a cover, and uh, it really makes quite a beautiful cover. So I, I want to also take this time to thank Jeff uh, for not only this cover, but for so many covers that uh, he shot for Jazz Is that really are, are, are truly iconish. And, uh, and they, uh, you know, they include, you know, artists like Dave Brubeck. In fact, um, one of the things I'll say about, about the photo shoots is that, remember, Jeff, we were a better visual product before we became a better reading product. I mean, today, the magazine's, you know, edited by David Polizzi. He's a phenomenal editor. I always say David could be the editor of Vanity Fair. I mean, he's just spectacular. Um, but we had that really cool look, thanks to you, a couple photographers that we didn't work with as long before you. I don't know if you know Chris Cafaro. Oh yeah, uh, Chris is great. Yeah, and um, but but you really kind of changed the tone and changed the direction, and that sort of became sort of not only a template for photography that we used in jazz is back in the late '80s and '90s, but it became a way for us to show that we're visually a different product than the other music magazines in addition to a, a different reading product. So, so uh, I thank you for that. I, I want to thank you publicly for all the, the incredible work you did, but we're not leaving yet because I also want to talk to you about another shoot that I remember and see if you can dig back in your memory to the, sh the shoot that you did with Dave Brubeck in his backyard. It looked like it was about zero degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, yeah, that was Stanbury, Connecticut, and it was cold, you know. And, you know, one of the things that I brought to my work with you uh, was just an all-out approach to the photography. So, uh, you know, in editorial photography, uh, you know, there's not the same budget, to put it mildly, as there is mm -hmm. if you're shooting, you know, for example, I shot Nike campaigns and right, FedEx commercial. and Blue yeah. Cross and all this, all this commercial uh, work for United Airlines, Bank of America, significant dollars on the line. Uh, they're spending tens of millions of dollars on their advertising, and so they'll spend a lot on the photography. Sure. I brought, when, despite the limited budgets of editorial photography, I just went all out for you. Um, mm -hmm. And for every single photograph that I ever made, you know, we on that mile shoot, we didn't have a budget for me to have a 20-foot truck and a generator and four people, you know, four assistants and all that. 
didn't matter, right? Every shoot was all out, and this was a Brubeck as an example. We uh, flew to, I, I flew from LA over to uh, New York, picked up our rental gear, rented a van, two assistants, uh, and a grooming person, and up we went to uh, Dave Brubeck's place in Danbury. And it was cold. Uh, we walked in, and and, uh, and this time I didn't have any sketches because I, except for one of him in front of his keyboard uh, of his piano, which I believe became the cover. Yeah, yeah. And that was a, a a really nice shot. Now, we walked in. He was very gracious, the nicest person you could ever meet. I could not signal to him how in awe I was of this man and his music, <laughs> which was most definitely on the turntable when I was three years old, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we walked around. We walked outside, and I said, this lake, this is your lake? He said, yes, this is my lake, you know, and, and uh, it was fantastic. So I said, we're going to do one shot here and we're going to do one shot by the piano and then we'll do some other images. We'll take go for a walk around the lake, which I always, well, I always like to have some personal time without my crew around. So I did some additional shots there. But for the, for the shot by the lake, I found um, a, a rowboat that was a couple hundred yards away and me and my crew, we lifted the rowboat and dragged it into position, carried it on our heads, put it exactly where it needed to go. Um, and then he had this immaculate lawn that was just, it's a huge, it was huge property, immaculate lawn. Everything's totally well-groomed. I said, this is too clean, you know? So then we found an area on the other side of the lake that was completely filled with leaves that had dropped. So we filled trash cans with those leaves, brought them over to his lawn and covered <laughs> his entire lawn with detrius. You're like, I mean, it was completely covered with autumn colored leaves you know, a couple hundred yards into the background and then uh, went up to his uh, room and selected some clothes, put a cowboy hat on him that he wore all the time. I asked him, what do you wear when you're just around the house or when you're working in the yard? And he showed me, you know, and so that's what we dressed him up in so that it wouldn't be, you know, the, the it's not, it's different than the shot that was on the cover. Let's put it that way. This is more of yeah. a lifestyle shot. So I get it all set up. We had a generator. We had a light on his uh, face and a, a, a fill light. The sun was going down over the trees behind him, and it was the most beautiful shot. And there was one thing out of place, which was the rope for the boat, uh, which was upside down, and he was sitting on the, on the edge of the boat. So I went on my knees, and I'm moving the boat around. And he, again, gave me that same look that Miles gave me, you know, like this, you know, this he's Dave, Bru Dave Brubeck sitting on the boat and I'm like moving this rope an inch. Right. <laughs> and, and I looked up at him and I said, improvising Dave. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, went back and th that shot, he loved that shot. And then we went inside and, um, he got dressed up and we did a shot with me up on a ladder, looking down on him with the keyboard in the background. He looked fantastic. It was a really great experience. Yeah, yeah, Dave. Dave was a wonderful man. I had actually had the chance to talk to him a couple times, and uh, he he just like you described. He was just he's just a, a really nice man, uh, as a, as well as an incredibly talented one. So so that so that was Brubeck. So some of the back then, the young lions, the new artists at the time. You you also did quite an incredible Winton Marsalis shoot, and in one of my favorite shots that I, I still kick myself for using this as the headline because you had this uh, shot of Winton uh, in a field and um, we wound up headlining the feature 
Wynton Marsalis outstanding in his field. And I just cringe every time I see that now, but I do, I love when I look at that photo. And so how, how was, I, I know there was that photo that we used on the cover that, you know, you had this beautiful setup close up, but this shot of him out in his field really sees Wynton kind of out there all alone. Uh, and, and you have this blue sky background and it's a little bit grainy. What, what were you doing at that time with, to get that shot? Well, <clears throat> um, this particular photo shoot was at a winery, and uh, it wasn't really a scene that uh, it was very, it was very much a prefabricated type looking place. Like, uh, wasn't the best location. There wasn't any room for me to really set up. Although I squeezed into a a dining room, set up my backdrop, and shot the cover photograph, which is a close up color portrait of him. But then uh, we walked around before Winton came out and I found a spot on a hill that I thought would make a great vista and would leave some nice room for your two page spread. Uh, you know, we photographers, we have to think about not just creating a great photograph, but leaving room for the magazine masthead on a cover, leaving room for you to run a headline across the photo if you want to do it. And so I left some nice negative space for you there. Uh, and, and, and I was, I was a good distance away from him with a very long lens to where I think I needed an assistant between us just to relay what I was asking him to do, you know, turn this way, turn that way, hold the horn in this hand, you know, hold the horn in that hand and just have him look off into the distance or look at me, that sort of thing. And I purposefully thought, you know, to add some texture, I would use a special film that's really at the time and, and uh, was not often used in, in editorial photography for reproduction, had super big chunky grain in it. It was really beautiful and uh, very high speed film to the point where it was so high speed that I couldn't actually shoot it in broad daylight. So I had to put what are called neutral density filters, which are gray pieces of plastic over the front of my lens to darken down the light so that I could get an exposure. So I couldn't actually see through the lens as I was making the images, but I'm very pleased with, uh, with, with the results and Winton just loved these photographs. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were fantastic. By the way, uh, for everyone listening, go to jazzes.com. Uh, some of these shots that Jeff is talking about are, sh are shown there and you'll see what we're talking about. So Jeff, the, the other shoot that I think is, if I may, an iconic Jeff Sudlick shot is Dizzy Gillespie. The D Dizzy Gillespie shoot that you did, um, you know, you made it into posters. Um, I, I've seen it everywhere. I think book covers. Um, tell us about that day with Dizzy, because I, I think sh shortly thereafter, um, Dizzy passed. That's right. That's right. You know, something I never told you, Michael, was that when I started shooting for you, I was only a year out of school. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me now. <laughs> right. I just felt, you know, I've been burdened by the guilt. I think I shot 21 covers for you over the years. I had to tell you, I was about a year and a half out of the Art Center College of Design, where I have now been teaching for many years. And so I was a greenhorn, but I, uh, I, 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 you know, my very first shoot for you, I think, was Grover Washington. Uh, and that yeah. was a that was a cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Dizzy Gillespie, uh, the call from you to do this shoot came after Dizzy Gillespie had posed for the great photographer Herb Ritz, who did uh, a fantastic, iconic, beautiful 
photograph of Dizzy with his, I think he was blowing out one cheek with his finger on his on his lip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, my problem is that I couldn't think of a better shot. <laughs> but you and did. So I remember, you know, the night I I. I I did sketches. I did every, you know, uh, with his trumpet, um, without his trumpet, um, little trumpets, oversized trumpets, you know, uh, straight ahead black and white portraits. I didn't feel that any of my ideas were really matching up. And I remember, or, or, or let's say coming up to the level to surpass my good friend, Herb Ritz, you know, because it is a bit competitive creatively out there. I'm not talking business-wise. I'm just talking about we all want to create um, iconic photographs that will be remembered. And my goal when I'm creating an image is really to create one of the ultimate expressions of that person, like a visual that really is the visual that comes to mind when you think of that person. Sure. And then when I succeed, I think I've got a successful photograph. It's not to say that there aren't, there aren't, there isn't the possibility of more than one perspective on the person, but you know, if I set a high goal, it's good for my, for my working process. And so that night before this shoot, I was so nervous. I really don't get nervous before my photo shoots. I get excited, but not nervous. That night I was pretty nervous. I stayed up all night doing more and more sketches. And just as the sun was coming up, I came up with an idea to go get some bubble gum and to have Dizzy blowing a big pink bubble, um, you know, wearing a black fedora pulled down over his face but uh, uh, wearing a black fedora pulled down over his face, but isolating his cheeks. In other words, you wouldn't see his eyes. You would just see the big cheeks and the bubble, and you would know it was dizzy. And uh, I was pretty satisfied with that idea. You know, know, it's a little cute, but fantastic visual. Yeah. I I knew I had it in the bag, so... um, sent my assistant to go buy every different kind of bubble gum that was on the shelf so we could make sure that Dizzy would pick one. And uh, I, there he was going to be playing in Emeryville uh, that night. And and so I went to his hotel. We got the uh, like a downstairs banquet room that was empty, set up my backdrops, black backdrop, white backdrop, colored backdrops, separate lighting setups for each so we could just move Dizzy from one setup to the next without taking up his time. Um, I then went up to his room and we sat there and talked for about a half an hour um, just so that I can have some relationship with the person before they go in front of the camera. And as I was talking in the room, I noticed the light was beautiful on him. So I, of course, had a small camera with me, 35 millimeter camera, and, and began photographing him in his room by the window light. He played for me or he played, I wouldn't say for me, but he played in his room and I photographed him as he played. It was fantastic. And mm-hmm. then uh, by then we had a pretty good understanding of each other and uh, headed on down to the banquet room where my crew and makeup and hair and uh, everything was waiting, ready to go. And um, I wanted to get the bubble shot done first because it was technically the most challenging to get the light just right, to get the perfect bubble and all that. So uh, I said, Dizzy, you know, I have this bubble gum. He goes, what's that for? I said, uh, I think you know what this might be for. And he goes, oh, yeah. You know, so he said, sure. So he picked a bubble gum and uh, was chewing the gum, got a big, uh, a big bunch of it in his mouth. I'm talking about a lot of pieces. And he blew a bubble with, and his cheeks went out and the fedora was over his face and the whole thing came together. Boom. Just perfect. Yeah. You know, so I got that shot and he did that repeatedly for me. Um, Part of the problem was that 
he was blowing the exploding the bubbles right because <laughs> you know right. and, so, and so we had to do it repeatedly and he kept popping the bubbles and then i got <laughs> I, I got the shot and yep. uh, and uh so then uh you know some wardrobe changes and and uh the final as a final part of the shoot i um put the black fedora on him uh and had him uh this is what i did i had this already i put on uh in a silent way mm -hmm. on the on the little stereo we bring with us and you know dizzy and miles had some disagreements over the years about the direction mm -hmm. of miles music you know mm -hmm. and and i thought i'm going to put on classic miles in a silent way and just see what happens you know and dizzy closed his eyes and started listening to it and was you know kind of rocking a little bit his body back and forth with the with the music and really listening uh beautiful expressions that was not posed that was a real moment and i made a whole role of him doing that and uh uh and those 12 exposures i think this was the last uh photo session of dizzy the last studio yeah. session of dizzy um that night i went also photographed him as he played and uh he was still wearing the the turtleneck that i gave him and uh he <laughs> fell he fell ill on stage wow. and um uh subsequently yeah, subsequently, um, well, there is a little bit of a story there because I got a call from his publicist saying, you didn't give Dizzy sugar gum, did you? <laughs> and he said, you know, I mean, the, the, the uh, publicist said, uh, I think her name was Virginia. She said, uh, you know, he's diabetic, you know, and, and I said, I really don't know what gum he chose, but he would have known, hopefully not, you know, so for a moment, uh, a, a good hour. I thought I had given him something that had caused him to fall ill, you know, so, uh, you know, because I, I, you know, so I was completely panicked. And then it turned out that um, it was another cause, you know, he, he had been ill for some time, but didn't know it. And they discovered after that, and through some examinations that he was seriously ill, and he subsequently passed away, but not before. Um, his publicist brought the images to his bedside. And uh, one of the images had him wearing a, a, one of his favorite hats that his wife hated him to wear. Uh, <laughs> he told me, but he, but he purposefully wore it. And uh, I think his wife was Lorraine. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he said, you made me look like a king. You know, and <laughs> and uh, that photograph was subsequent. I think you folks ran it. And I, I think love I love that. In fact, yeah. you know, for some reason, those images, of course, the bubble gum is the iconic shot. But those images, when I saw them, they were just, they were just so beautiful. I, I didn't know the backdrop of his wife didn't like that hat, but he did. <laughs> he did look quite uh, majestic. Yeah, yeah, it was great. One point, at one point, he was a real joker, right? So he was telling jokes and kind of trying to throw me off the whole time. And at one point, I'm looking through my camera, my Hasselblad. And he's coming at me and he's got a knife out and he's coming right at me with this knife. And I snapped the picture before I stepped back because, you know, got to be a photographer. Right, so I have right. this picture of him coming at me with this knife. He was just messing with me. Ah, uh, that's great. Uh, I'd love to see that sometime. But so, so the, the, I know the Dizzy and the Miles shot that we spoke of, those, they're still posters. You can buy those. Yeah, at jazzandbluesmasters.com. You Good. can pick them up and elsewhere as well. They're in most poster stores. That's, now, now uh, aside from those two classic shots, did you make any other posters? 
I did. I have a poster of B.B. King. I shot the cover of his Lifetime retrospective CD box set, which is called King of the Blues. Mm -hmm. And that image of him with his guitar, Lucille, is also uh, a poster. Ah, well, speaking of uh, another uh, iconic guitarist, uh, George Benson. I, I said in, in the latest issue that that was my favorite George Benson photo session ever. Um, but I know George, and I'm sure it wasn't easy to do that session because he is extremely particular. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's one of the best guitarists on the planet. Oh, yeah. he, and he knows it, <laughs> right? And so, uh, and he's still playing today. And, um, you know, and he doesn't like being photographed, just period. He does not like being photographed. And, 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 and a lot of people are uncomfortable being photographed. It can be uncomfortable depending on the photographer's approach. And, um, you know, we went to his house, which was, I think, in Ever Evergreen, New Jersey. Yeah, it's in North, uh, North Jersey, yeah. Yeah, a fantastic, beautiful, uh, I think it might be a Wright house. I'm not absolutely sure, sure but it looked like one. And um, it has a moat around it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a beautiful home with a recording studio in it. And we set up in his living room, moved all his furniture aside. He was gracious with us. Very nice. And uh, once he once he saw that I was how serious I was about the about the work and wanted to uh, make sure that the images said what he felt they needed to say. Um, and so we got all set up in his living room and it, it was a thick shag carpet, as I remember. And, you know, we photographers, when we're lighting with what's called strobe or, or flash, you can't it's not a cons constant light. You can't really see it. So you use a meter that can read that flash and how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm, my assistant's walking around on this shag carpet, takes a reading, and a spark flies from his thumb to the meter and destroys the meter. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm working blind, right? <laughs> I don't know what my exposure needs to be. I don't know the difference in the lights. We have maybe five or six lights up, how much light is coming from each of those and, and what the reading is on George and his guitar. Uh, it, it didn't turn the meter off. It changed it to Chinese. So, and, and there was no menu for changing the language of the meter, right? And, and it was late because George wanted this done at night as most musicians do. So I had no, no opportunities there. It wasn't the digital day where you can just snap a photograph and see exactly what you had. We have, we have some Polaroid, which was our method back then, put Polaroid film in the camera, but that didn't exactly match the film. So we were working blind on that shoot and I did a great, um, shot of him for the cover, close-up yeah, color shot. Love that. Shot. Then we took out his guitar, I think an acoustic guitar, and um, I was talking with him back and forth, just kind of banter between the two of us, and he was cracking up. And I, I think that resulted in one of the photographs that you ran a great color photograph of him with an acoustic guitar, just kind of yeah. laughing and looking down. And, and uh, uh, wh what an icon uh, George Benson is. Oh yeah. And, well, and you know what a history. Well, you know the the. One of my fa favorite things that another guitarist, Pat Metheny, oh, yeah. uh, said about George Benson. Uh, and when I was talking to Pat once, he said, he said, George Benson is probably one of the greatest jazz guitarists ever. But if I had a voice like him, I'd never pick up the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an unbelievable yeah. compliment. Yeah, that is. Pat. Wow. 
But the um, so so my follow up to that is after you did the shoot and we were dealing with George because he wanted some things done on the cover. He he actually he really wanted to be involved with the with the cover, um, and so um, we were somewhere where George was playing at a festival, and um, I ran into him and he said, you know. After the show, after I'm done, let's let's go to the hotel bar and grab a drink. So we went to the bar, and and he he kind of looked at me. He kind of pointed to the corner, and I could tell he wanted to sit in a seat not facing the bar, so you'd only see the back of his head. And I yeah, he 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 didn't want to be recognized. And so we were sitting there having a conversation, and over the barroom speakers, um, Whitney Houston's "The Greatest Love of All," which is a, a song that he sang years before, came on the overhead, and George jumped out of his seat and uh, starts singing at the top of his lungs uh, this song along with Whitney in the bar. Although Whitney's not there for real, but um, and I was just it just took me by surprise. I wow. thought, thought we were going to just be really quiet in the corner, and there he gives this kind of cabaret. Uh, walk into the middle of the bar and start singing, but but that's George. And uh, in fact, I'm going to be talking to George next week. Fantastic. But um, well, Jeff, this was uh, this was great. I, I I love your stories. I know I know that listeners are going to love the stories about these classic photos. And uh, again, you uh, you made a real difference. I think a lot of your photos were inspirational, not just to me as a magazine publisher, but I think for artists that wanted a certain look on, on albums and in shots that they used for the media. Um, and, and I, I want to thank you for all those incredible photo shoots you did for jazzes over the years. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I always love the publication and, and of course, continue to follow the publication, great design, great imagery. And, uh, it was a great opportunity for me coming out of the gate there out of school without telling you so <laughs> to, 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 you know, to, to be able to uh, have all of these opportunities to create images. And certainly that led to me making well over 200 um, album covers and CD covers over the years. here today with Tom LaGuff, uh, a stellar photographer who has uh, done incredible work over the years, uh, not just with Jazz Is, but with, with other businesses, uh, doing photography and making you know, people look great, but also getting something, getting those uh, people to do something that they might not ordinarily do. So, hi, Tom. Good to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks, Michael. You bet. That. So, so for those who don't know the backdrop, um, Tom Lagoff, uh, we met, I want to say back in the 90s, was it in the 90s? Oh, yeah, the 90s. And, um, you know, it seems like forever ago, but, um, um, and he was, um, if, if I remember the, the story, you were actually working with James Minchin. Correct. And James was a, a pretty, pretty, uh, well-known photographer in the LA area and and t tell us what was happening then and maybe maybe even step back like before you you uh, worked with uh, James what you were doing and how you got into this 
Oh, right. Well, like I said, it was the 90s, and I am kind of a child of the 90s. I um, did my internship uh, here in New York City in 1989, and I did my internship with a photographer named Mark Seliger, who um, went on to sure. replace Annie Leibovitz yeah, at Rolling Stone Magazine and now Vanity Fair. So that internship kind of set me up for all I started to think about for portraiture and celebrity and music. So I officially moved to New York in 1990, and that started my that started my career. Um, so many years later, I met uh, James Mincham, and he was actually based out of New York at the time, though he was spending more and more time in L.A., so we did a lot of shoots together for jazzes and some other R&B uh, uh, labels and whatnot. And then he officially moved to L.A., at which point you folks needed someone in New York City. So yeah. I kind of walked into that position, and it was, the you know, to this day, it's still the best gig I've ever had. I, I love shooting for jazzes. So. Oh, well, thanks. And we love when you shoot for us. You know, the... Um, you know, one of the things that, um, and I encourage uh, listeners to go look at the uh, issues that uh, Tom did such wonderful work, um, but you managed to capture the artists in a way that um, that was unique for them. In fact, you know, several of those artists, whether it was Chick Corea or Eliane Elias, um, you know, and so many others, um, that became one of their favorite shots. In fact, um, I, I think it was Chick that, like the photo session so much that um, he wound up wanting to use it for a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, it was sort of like, you know, what is it? What do you, what do you do that gets an artist to have a look that becomes iconic or is it, is it, is it luck? Is it, is it, you know, some secret sauce that you have? I, I would love to say it's more than just luck, but I think there, I think luck does have something to do with it. Of course. Um, yeah, I, well, I I take every shoot very seriously. Uh, I, I I this yes, this is a job. This is how I pay my rent. But you know that aside, I love photography. I meet somebody, and I try my hardest to make a great picture. Now, within that context, I'm also trying to uh, fit people into my style very often, and all uh, the things I was all the time I shoot for jazz is very often I was hoping that these artists would see it my way and we would do these more, what I would consider, what I would consider simple portraits as opposed to more contrived portraits with like lots of props. And they seem to go for it. Uh, we sh often shot out of small studio spaces on location and it was just, uh, you know, I'd have a couple hours with them and I would try to make a rapport and get them to trust me and get them to give me something. And very often they would. So, and, you know, Trick's a great uh, example of that. And, oh, but uh, so many others were just came in and were very willing to try stuff. Eliana was uh, always trying to, wanting to do something and pushing things a little bit more. Um, Jane Monhay, it was wonderful. I mean, Jane Monhay actually went on to hire me to photograph her wedding too, which was an honor. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about Jane for a second because, you know, that is, um, I don't think it's just mine. I think it's one of, one of a favorite jazz's cover for a lot of people and, and, and how that all came together because, you know, you got her to put on this leopard leotard, leopard print leotard, and, and it worked so well for the cover. I mean, what were you saying to her at the time? Did do you have to trick her into it or was she, she on board? No, I, I did not have to trick her at all, which is lucky because sometimes there are these things depending on the artist that you, you might have to, 
you know, ease them down the road of these set-up shots. But we started, and I'm not exactly sure who came up with the Me Jane idea, but we started with that concept and worked backwards. Um, had that, and then I uh, you know, talked to her and her people at her record company, and she was, you know, of the age, a, a, you know, a younger, fashionable person, and we put her in a, you know, not a silly costume, but a nice-looking outfit that fit her style, uh, fit her youth, and uh, we worked it. I, I, I brought in a stylist. I brought in hair and makeup, so we did kind of treat it a bit like a fashion shoot meets a portrait shoot, and you know, depending on the artist, that was, you know, a lot of people liked that. Some people did not like the fashion word, but Jane was down for it. And again, uh, Jane liked doing different setups and whatnot, but the, the leopard skin went really well. And, you know, if she had uh, instantly been offended by the me Jane uh, joke concept, then the whole thing could have gone differently. But Right, right. So so for listeners, the, the, the uh, I, I wanted to, because it's 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 sort of so obvious it's silly, um, you know her name is Jane and so me Jane the, the Tarzan reference, and and then we had to come up with something that was kind of a a cool uh, subheadline. So I, I believe it was she's the new queen of the jungle, but does she swing? So what it did is it it took your fashion shoot, which you convinced her to put that leopard print leotard on, and it took this kind of tongue in cheek headline. Which and, and this fashiony kind of look, but it also it played with it. It had a little fun with it, and it tied it into jazz, which is why that became one of my favorite jazz's covers. Oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was and again with uh, Jane. I mean, the, and like a lot of the shoots, there was always I'm shooting the cover, so that would be one idea, and then we're shooting the inside right. and the cover because. We want to put type in the name of the magazine across it. It needed to be kind of a blank, plain background. So that's the white background uh, and her doing this fashion thing. When we went inside, we you know played around more with uh, other looks. But yeah. So who who? And this may be a, a question that is tough to be asked on the spot. Who was your favorite photo session of all the jazz shoots? Wow, that is a tough one. Um, I, I really did like Jane a lot just because I did go on to you know photograph her wedding. So I met her family, I met her husband's family and stuff like that. So that that took on something. Um, but there's you know people like you know meeting iconic jazz mu uh, you know performers, musicians like Chick Corea um, is, is always uh, a big deal. So yeah. there's that. So it's so it is a hard one. And then. You know, for one shoot, I got you guys sent me off to LA to do a shoot, so that was also another thing. But I like to travel, but um, it, so that, but I am just trying to think. Abby Lincoln, Abby Lincoln, and Cassandra Wilson was quite. Oh crazy. yeah, oh yeah. Because they, they were pals, and one was a little bit older, and one was looking up to the other. But I set them up in a bar, and my only really instruction was, "You two just talk, and let me just shoot." And I got to hear them talk and talk about music and talk about their lives and, and you know, these two masterminds of music uh, uh just and being able to be you know the fly on the wall of a, a great conversation that was wonderful yeah I, I remember that too and that was also kind of a fun headline uh that larry blumenfeld actually came up with at the time but yeah it was how about like um i'm trying to think of some of the the the, the real interesting ones that that may have how about was there a, a one that you would consider 
a difficult or a hard session to do. It ultimately came out, but it was a, it was painful. Well, I mean, I, I'm thinking the the most painful thing is when you start to deal with personalities and egos, and every now and then there was you know, someone who did not like the way I was shooting or decided to micromanage me. And, and I have to, I am thinking of one person in particular, which I don't really want to name in a public <laughs> forum. Right, um, right. I, I, they I, were I, very nice about the whole thing, but they're very particular. Yes, so. yes. Yeah. I, I, um, I think I know who that is. Um, but I won't say it either, I, but I, I might segue into, um, you know, one of the covers that literally put this artist on the map, possibly jazz is on the map, even though we were in our night, it was 10 years later after our launch and people took notice of your work was the first Diana crawl cover that we did. Oh yeah. And, and, and um, you know, I remember um, getting a call one morning um, and I think it was on CBS this morning. And they said, you got to turn CBS, you know, back when we, we used to watch CBS. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're showing a cover of Jazz Is with Diana Cross. She's being interviewed this morning. Um, and they're holding this magazine up. And, you know, I kind of felt like we arrived. But more important, it was like how it all came together. You know, she we did a cover story, very well done cover story. The photo clicked. She was just arriving on the scene and really starting to get a lot of momentum. And sort of, it, it's interesting how that kind of thing that we did, that you did, that Jeff Sedlick did, um, basically was part of a movement that was taking place at the time. Because, you know, when I started Jazz's Magazine, one of the things that I wanted to do um, was like a lot of businesses, you want to be not just better than your competitors, you want to be different. And you want to do things, you want to be known for doing something that maybe they don't do. And one of the things I thought of early on, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist for this, it's, it's let's have these beautiful iconic visual covers that if you don't even know jazz, you look at the cover and say, who's that? And, and you achieved that so well. And I think that, you know, to give you a lot of credit, um, that helped create a buzz for a lot of these artists that went on to be famous. And so you were kind of part of the momentum. We certainly had our little contributing part to it. And, and that really, you know, popularized a lot of artists that had we not done that, um, you know, who knows what would have happened. And not that they wouldn't have rose to the occasion because of their own talents, but that sort of thing that we all did to really showcase, present um, these jazz artists in a different light, I think, I think actually did make a difference. And, you know, one of the things that I always say that is that, you know, because of the work that you did and others, uh, like Jeff Sedlick, um, I think it, it actually forced our competition to get better. When they would see a, an iconic Jazz Is cover there, I, I couldn't imagine that they didn't look at it and say, we have to start doing some of that. So uh, I guess it's a good time uh, to say publicly, thanks, Tom. 
Wow, I, that's amazing. I, I, I don't know if I know all these stories that you're talking about, um, but that's amazing. But, but you know, I have to admit, again, you know, my internship was with who I consider one of my mentors in photography, uh, Mark Seliger. And so I yeah. learned a lot, like, working on those shoots. But, you know, those shoots were multi-thousand dollars or more big sure. shoots at times. So, and, you know, jazz is, is good, but we didn't have Rolling Stone money, uh, no offense. Right. So, um, so I we was still, trying to get we- we still don't have Rolling Stone. <laughs> so, and also, I didn't really always, I have to admit, know every artist that was you, you guys were turning me on to. So all I could do was deal with this person in front of me and try to make a stunning image of this person, not always being able to fall back on uh, who they are. Because, you know, if you go and look and see a picture of Johnny Depp, you instantly go, oh, that's Johnny Depp. That's really cool. But if you don't know the person, then your lighting and gestures and all the photographic stuff should be in place too. Um, so well, and, yeah, and and you know the, you know sort of like and and use Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone was my model. You know, I looked at Rolling Stone, um, and said, I hope someday, to be like that. Of course, you know, we could never be as big as Rolling Stone because it's got a huge international audience that that re- reads the magazine for more than music. Um, not only that we're in jazz, but but it's it, it's something that when you're that kind of a magazine and you have the kind of reach that is for people that are interested in reading about politics, it, it's it's a different perspective. But the thing that that we borrowed or stole from Rolling Stone is I remember seeing an artist when I was younger and impressionable uh, reading music magazines. On, on a Rolling Stone cover that I say, yeah, you know, I heard of that artist. It's not like they were of a, a, a Johnny Depp, as you mentioned, stature, but the photos were so compelling that now I want to read about that artist right. or band. And so I always said, you know, Rolling Stone and 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 the fashion magazines, as you alluded to, in, in, with fashion, um, they always took this approach where you know it's it's a person who was in a situation where the photographer captured this moment that either became really interesting to look at and sometimes iconic. Um, and that made that artist larger than life. And then we would have coverage of the magazine of jazz artists. Let's say, you know, someone, the, who, the late, great Jerry Allen, who unbelievably talented jazz musician Certainly not a household name, but if you put her in the right situation, create that iconic cover that you did, then someone's going to look at that and say, I wonder why I don't know who she is. <laughs> Maybe I should check her out. And that was really what I, I wanted to do and, and we succeeded on and in doing. And and that is is something that we, we continue to try to do because we believe if you if you present these artists, I mean, if you think about it, you know, what do we do at jazz is we're, we're really presenters. I mean, it's not our music. It's the music of these great musicians. Um, and if you can present them in a certain way, then maybe someone who would ordinarily not even have the opportunity to experience a Jerry Allen now experiences her because of what we did visually. So thanks again. Oh yeah, that's great. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that was something I liked about jazz is a lot. And I don't know if it's because you guys are in Florida and I'm in New York, but um, you were fairly hands off. Um, 
you know, you maybe give me a title like the uh, uh, me Jane or something. Sometimes there was a, maybe a little bit of a theme, but you know, for the most part, you did not like really tell me much more than you know, try to leave some room for type or something. And you know, it was kind of nerve wracking at times because I was like, I hope they like what I'm doing. But um, <laughs> but you also gave me the freedom as an artist to uh, do these things and. You know, and I like the parameters that were set up. And, I, you know, there's you know, time and money and whatever, but I, I get to meet these artists. But you folks never really, you know, there was never a reshoot, that's for sure. So you yeah. always seemed happy with what I was doing and, um, and well, allowed it, me to give you my style. So Well, and, the, and then, you know, there's that famous quote. I can't remember whether it's Steve Jobs or Richard Branson that said, um, you know, you don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. <laughs> you hire smart people so they can tell you what to do. I like and, that. And that's what you did. You basically, when you when you delivered uh, an Esperanza Spalding cover, you knew what to do. And really, all we needed to do was come up with a clever headline uh, that would hopefully grab someone's attention at the newsstand. Or when the subscriber pulled it out of their mailbox, they said, Wow, isn't that cool? Uh, and and that's really what we were able to achieve together. And so you know that that's something that you know is kind of our legacy because as you know, the print magazine is is what we call our legacy product. I mean, it's oh. we're celebrating our 35th anniversary, which is why we did this cover story, the the, the new issue on newsstands right now of uh, Jazz is 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 basically it. This cover story is about the iconic photos that uh, were shot for Jazz Is over 35 years. And it's, you know, it started with uh, a photographer named Chris Cafaro. Uh, from Chris, it went to Jeff Sedlick, and J we worked with Jeff for, I would say, you know, almost 10 years. And then, uh, and then, uh, then, then James, for a very short period, James mentioned, and then of course you. And then, you know, we continue to work with you today, which, which is, is still as fun as it was back in the 90s. Yeah, no, it's funny because I, I do, yes, I over, I over uh, a glow of the 90s, but anyways, but I, I'm very much part of technology today. And I'm so, you know, I'm amazed how jazz is uh, also within a very hard industry, the publishing industry uh, transformed into this uh, great online and able to do work with things too. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and uh, you just uh, you hit me with another one, Esperanza. She she was a fun shoot, and we didn't do anything more than she showed up to my studio. She was just herself, and she is just a wonderful, laid back, uh, great, sweet person. This is before this is just before her Grammy, so yeah, yeah. She just yeah you know, she didn't have an entourage. I don't know if she has one now, but back then she did, and. Um, and she and she brings her bass with her, which is you know twice the size that she is. <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, and so we sat and we set up the shoot, and we um, and it turns out she loves Richard Pryor. So off camera the whole time, I had uh, Richard Pryor videos going. Her and I are just laughing to Richard Pryor and having this great time doing a shoot. And you know nothing nothing snazzier than that happened, other than we uh, we clicked and um, it was a good time. So I. I and then she went on to win the Grammy. I was like so amazed that I was able to spend some time with her before she got to the big time there. Yeah. Well, well, a couple of things I'll mention about Espy, who who I, I you know she is truly one of my favorite artists and a talent that I, when you listen to her music and you listen to what she's doing and all the different things that she does, it's hard that it, to imagine that that's just in one person. 
Yeah, but, oh, yeah. but that being said, is as much as you're in, you had an enjoyable photo session with her. I actually, um, she was performing at one of the jazz's clubs. Uh, I would say a couple months after that cover came out, and um, and you know I'm really excited because you know I'm getting to have. I was literally sat down and had dinner with with Esperanza, and um, I asked her so so how did you like the cover? And she said, I hated it. And I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean you hated it? She goes, no, don't get me wrong. The photo shoot was great. And the photos on the inside, but on the cover, you made me look so young and innocent. Oh. <laughs> and I was, um, I don't know if that was intentional, but it was about this young artist that we believe is the future of jazz. So maybe it was intentional, but, but, but she, you know, and, and, and online on jazzes.com and in the new uh, print issue, uh, you'll see that, that one photo that everyone couldn't help but love. Uh, and it's, uh, you captured her with that gigantic base. And it was, you know, one of those sessions that we will never forget. And I think our readers will never forget because it captured an artist literally who was relatively unknown at the time who now you know plays occasionally at the white house um, <laughs> she she hangs with some of the big pop artists and yet she hangs on to her jazz roots uh and has the chops uh, second to none so so that was yeah i agree that was that was a fun time and a and certainly a great artist that is one that you know at the time Every, all the things were working. You know, she had this great album out and we did this cover, this great, cool photo session we introduced and, and then she wins the Grammy. So again, I, it, it's great to, great to have, have some, if, even if minuscule part of that, that, uh, that you contributed to, that we contributed to, because that's what we do at Jazz is. We're, we're, we take artists that are not mainstream necessarily in that, you know, the, the, they're not a household name, but we want people to check them out without forcing it, but giving them a reason to want to check it out. And I think visually photography does that. Oh, I am so happy to be able to contribute to that. So yeah. That's, that's great. I, that's funny, I never heard the story about her. I mean, she, in my opinion, she was young back then. She was, she was. <laughs> well, and, and, and in fact, I think if I asked her now, I, I actually talked to her a couple months back and we talked about that. Um, you know, she realizes she was young and innocent. She has learned so much about the music business and life's so many things since that photo session. I think she she would even agree that back then she was young and innocent. So again, you're capturing the moment. It's it's Esperanza in her young and innocent days. <laughs> and now she's a little older and probably not so innocent. <laughs> Well, the music industry might do that to you. So, yes, uh, but, yes. but we all grow up and we all learn things about the world. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so with that, I, I again, I, I want to thank you, Tom, uh, for. I, I, I don't know if we're getting to the end because there is a, a one more person or thing I would like to say. If that's all yeah, right. sure. I, because somebody, you know, and I'm I'm so thankful for all the people at Jazz's, like you know, you, you know, you for even just starting it, and all. I know there's a lot of people, but back in the day, I'm and I hope I'm not getting her name wrong, but Cindy, the art director back then. Cindy Troopin. Yes, she was wonderful. She was the first kind of 
business relationship I ever had. This is back in the 90s when we still had to make phone calls. And making phone calls to the art department sometimes was unnerving because you know you're going to get yelled at or something. <laughs> and just talking to her, she was always just like, very much like, we're in this together. Let's make great images. Uh, here's your freedom. Uh, and then when you folks would put out the uh, little CDs that would come with the magazines, the the mixed CDs, they, you guys would use some of my more fine artwork on the covers. And mm -hmm. I just can't say enough great things about her. I, I have no idea where she is nowadays. But um, but those years that we uh, worked together, I, uh, I, I've always dreamed of having another business relationship like that again someday. So, well, uh, I, I'll give I'll give you and readers a, a heads up on Cindy Troopin. Uh, absolutely, one of my favorite art directors. Immensely talented. Her her sort of placement of visuals and typography, you know, back in the the analog world was second to none. In fact, I, I think one of the reasons why. Time Warner took a look at us back in the 90s was we were putting out visuals that looked like magazines with circulation and multi-millions because we mm. we had that look and Cindy had that that style. So I hadn't talked to her in years um, and I tried to track her down and I actually thought she was kind of ignoring me because I would track her down at a place that she was working and I'd leave messages and she'd never call me back. Well, one day I finally get the right number and I call her <laughs> and we, we connect on the phone. I find out that, you know, I moved to South Florida in 2000. She moved to South Florida and um, I actually went out with her and her husband for dinner. I want to say about a year ago. And it was so great to see her because I agree with you, Tom. She was, she was just an incredibly talented art director and, and a lot of fun to work with. You should also know that she was my only Jazz's staffer over the years that would come to work and take her shoes off and walk around the office barefoot all day. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. No, she was great. I, you know, I've never, I, I to this day do not know what she looks like. I, she was just a voice. She was like Charlie on Charlie's Angels, this voice that would just call up and, you know, tell me to do good jobs and then use my work in beautiful ways. Um, so. She was she was very funny, very very articulate, very well spoken, and uh, a lot of fun to be around. Her office was next to mine, and we had um, we had a lot of fun during those years. And uh, uh, you know, I I'll have to reach out to her and, and tell her to listen to the podcast and uh, check out all the nice things we're saying about her because she certainly deserves it. Um, our current art director, you may have worked with too for a short period of time, Eric Beatty. Yeah. And Eric is, you know, he he was the jazz's art director, I want to say 20 years ago. And when I was looking to sort of go back to that style that that Cindy really started with us, um, I called up Eric and I said, you know, can you do it? And he said, well, I really can't now. I'm at this you know, full time gig and it's it's really, you know, stressful and very busy. And um, and then a couple months later, he called and he said, you know, I really want to get back and 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 do jazz is again. And I said, "Come on, <laughs> let's do it." <laughs> and so so Eric Beatty, the art director from twenty years ago, is is now back at Jazz is. Has been here almost a year. Oh great! Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's amazing to have you back because um, I I look forward to doing something really soon again. Uh, maybe we'll find the next great 
jazz artists that no one's ever heard of and do a cover that will make sure that people know who that artist is. Well, I'll do old and grizzled as well. But yes, I would, you know, I would always love to shoot for jazzes. You guys are a special place in my heart, in my career, um, in my visual uh, vernacular of learning how to be a better photographer. So uh, I, I can't thank jazzes enough for giving me the chance. Uh, you know, I was young and unknown, and you folks gave me my first and biggest chance I've ever had. All right, and that does it for another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. Another thank you to the 2019 Norfolk Waterfront Jazz Festival in downtown Norfolk Waterfront, Virginia. They're celebrating their 37th year. The fest is set to take place August 23rd and 24th. That's the perfect time to chill to the legendary sounds of top national smooth jazz and R&B artists. To check out their artist lineup, head on over to our website and click that National Waterfront Jazz Fest banner. We'd also like to thank Chesky Records, the premier audiophile record label, whose goal is to create the illusion of live musicians in a real three-dimensional space. They've got a new release out by bassist and vocalist Casey Abrams. The high-res audio is available on HD tracks, and you can also pick it up on Amazon or iTunes. Another big thank you to Blue Note Records. They've got a new album by Nora Jones out right now called Begin Again. And in June, they'll be releasing a new album by pianist and singer Jamie Cullum called Taller. Check them out at bluenote.com. And a thank you to Smoke Sessions Records, whose latest album is by vocalist Mary Stallings. It's called Songs Were Made to Sing. To check it out, along with all of their recent releases, go to smokesessionsrecords.com. Thanks also to Deezer, an online streaming service that offers more than 53 million tracks and over 100 million playlists. To check out the playlist that we curate on Deezer, head on over to deezer.com and search for Jazz Is. And thank you to the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, New Jersey. On August 9th is a performance by R&B standouts Anthony Hamilton and Jasmine Sullivan. For tickets and more info, visit njpac.org. That's njpac.org. Another thanks to the Adrian Arch Center for the Performing Arts here in Miami, Florida. On June 15th, they'll be hosting the Beach Tone Jazz Festival featuring Grammy Award-winning Bossa Nova star Elian Elias, guitar legend Yamandu Costa, and legendary percussionist Sammy Figueroa. For more info, visit arshtcenter.org. Lastly, we'd like to shout out the Navy Band Commodore's 50th anniversary celebration concert, taking place September 22nd at 3 p.m. at the Rachel M. Schlesinger Concert Hall and Art Center in Alexandria, Virginia. If you're in the area, stop by and check it out. All right, everyone, that's it for us. We'll see you next time for another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think.